Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am sitting with Dr. Mark Panisi. Dr. Panisi is a professor of ophthalmology at the KCI Institute of the Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Panisi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here today. Ah, thank you. So uh, we're going to dive into a topic that is uh, certainly caught a lot of headlines in, in, in recent years. Um, we've talked about technology called CRISPR um, and specifically um, how CRISPR is being used to um, treat uh, rare eye diseases. But I was hoping maybe you could start off with um, just a high level overview of what CRISPR is for people who are listening. Sure. Well, I think it's probably useful to, to start off with a high-level overview of genetic uh, diseases and, and how those occur, and many will be familiar with those concepts, but there are many different genetic diseases, and of course, these result when you have a mutation in the DNA. Um, DNA codes for RNA, which codes for proteins, which makes up all of the cells in our body. And so there, there are different kinds of mutations. You can have mutations where you essentially lose function of a protein or a protein uh, doesn't get expressed. You can also have gain-of-function mutations where the protein takes on properties that are toxic to the cell or cause problems with the cell. So when we think about gene therapy, there, there are different kinds of gene therapy. So um, traditionally, we've talked about gene replacement or gene augmentation therapy, where essentially you're putting in a new copy of the gene. And usually the way we do that is delivering a copy of the gene using a viral vector and a small piece of DNA will go into the nucleus and code for uh, a normal copy of the protein, thus augmenting uh, the missing uh, protein or, or replacing what is defective. With gene editing, it's, it's a little different because instead of putting in a new copy of the gene, we're actually editing the native DNA or, or fixing the problem where it occurs. And, and there are different ways to do that and many different mechanisms to do that. I think in, in the simplest manner, you can make a, a cut in the DNA and take out a piece that is causing problems. And so CRISPR um, is a technology, and this is something that essentially comes from bacteria. Um, there are proteins that bacteria have called Cas proteins that are used to cut up pieces of viral DNA that, that try to infect the bacterial cells. And it, it's really a primitive immune system for bacterial cells to protect themselves from viruses. And, and they actually can keep pieces of viral DNA uh, in their own DNA, almost like a, a memory bank, so that in the future they can recognize those viral pieces of DNA and, and cut them up more efficiently. So what can be done then is sort of co-opt that system um, for use in the human genome. So we can re-engineer the, the Cas proteins and target them to um, go to a spot where a mutation is and make a little cut uh, in the DNA, a double-stranded cut. And if you have two different 
guide RNAs that can, you can actually cut out a piece of, of DNA. So in a situation where, let's say for example, you might have a stop codon um, or a mutation that is creating a stop codon, you might be able to cut that out and that can result in full length transcription of the protein. So that's kind of a big overview. There are many different variations on that and you know, more advanced ways of editing uh, the DNA that, that are also being looked at. No, so thanks for, thanks for, that's a nice overview. And, and uh, what I was hoping to, we're going to talk about a couple of specific diseases, but before we do that, you uh, alluded to the fact that there are different ways um, of approaching gene therapy and, you know, gene editing is, is one of those ways. Um, and certainly, um, you know, a, a new and exciting way. What are some of the benefits, I guess you could say, or cases where gene editing is maybe the, um, you know, method of choice to pursue clinically, you know, in what, in what diseases or in what situations is that a better option than maybe traditional gene therapy? Sure. Well, I think, you know, there are two, two situations that come to mind. Um, first, when we think about gene augmentation therapy, where we're putting in a, a new copy of the gene you know, typically that DNA forms a, an episome or, or a ring inside of the nucleus where it will then uh, drive expression of the protein. And what we think that in theory that that DNA could express forever, in reality, we don't really know. And certainly it's possible that over time that uh, replaced um, gene or augmented gene could be silenced and you could lose expression. So one advantage of actually editing the, the native DNA would be that you would get longer persistence. Um, the second issue I think becomes one of, you know, regulatory um, control. Um, when we put in a gene for gene augmentation, we're putting a promoter usually to drive expression. And, and in some cases you can use the native promoter, but in other cases you might have to use a, a constitutive promoter that drives strong expression, but you're, you're losing the, the context of other elements in, in the DNA that might regulate the expression. So with gene editing though, because you're making the change at the native location, you're sort of maintaining all of those regulatory uh, elements. So you might actually get a more um, accurate uh, gene expression as compared to gene augmentation. And that might be important in a situation where overexpression of the gene might be toxic. So, you know, if we look at, um, you know, certain diseases, for example, with RP65 related retinopathy, that wasn't an issue because in patients who have labor congenital amaurosis due to RP65 mutations, you can overexpress RP65 and it's not toxic to the cell. But we know that other proteins, that can be a problem. And so in a situation where you're driving expression and you don't have as much control, that, that could actually create issues. And so gene editing might be better uh, in those situations. Okay, now that makes sense. The, now is that, um, this is my own curiosity, I'm gonna <laughs> go all over here as, as you're, you're giving answers, but is that something that, um, is still being heavily researched, like in these various uh, degenerative retinal conditions, and and within the same condition, there could be various um, un underlying uh, genetic issues. 
Um, is this something that's still being heavily researched to oh, understand? Yeah. yeah if, if, if like overexpression of this is, yeah, I can imagine for some of them, it's probably a sweet spot. And like, it'd be, it gets to a certain point, then it's, you know, too much of a good thing is a bad thing in that scenario. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, it's not the easiest thing to study because you can certainly look at it in, in mouse models um, by trying to make different lines of mice that, that have different expression levels or, there are ways, of course, to have, you know, inducible, um, you know, promoters that, that will drive different levels of expression. But, the, you know, that's a lot of work and, and a lot of investment of time. So we, we have knowledge of that for, for certain genes. But when we think about inherited retinal dystrophies, there are probably over 300 different genes that are involved. And we certainly don't have that information for, for every gene. Oh, that, and that's fair. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, labor congenital amaurosis or LCA. I was hoping you can give a little overview of what LCA is um, and then and, and why it is uh, an attractive, um, I guess, starting point for gene editing uh, in, in the eye. Sure. So labor congenital amaurosis is really a, a collection of diseases because there are probably about 25 different genes that can cause that particular phenotype. And we really define it as a very early and severe uh, retinal degeneration. Um, oftentimes patients will present within the first year of life with severe vision loss, nystagmus, um, photophobia in some cases or problems in the dark. Um, it can also present in a less severe form in, in the first five years of life, but it typically is affecting infants and young children. Additionally, it's a progressive disease. So they start off quite severe and it gets worse with time. And so, you know, the majority of these patients will ultimately be legally blind um, at a young age. And some will even lose all vision and go completely blind. So it's really a, a devastating disease in, in that sense. Um, I think the reason that it's been a target for gene therapy and gene editing is because of the potential to really uh, restore vision at an early age and, and or to maintain vision. And if you think about it, um, a lifetime of blindness is, is really a burden, you know, incredible burden on the patients, but also on, on society. The economic impact is very large. So the other reason that it's a good disease to look at is there are certain genes that cause LCA that have what we call structure function uh, dissociation. And what that means is that if we look at the retina of these patients, we can see that there's still cells there, but they're not working. So these patients may have very poor vision, light perception vision, but you look in the center of the retina and you can see that there are still photoreceptors there, um, but they don't have outer segments. So they, they can't actually capture light. And this often happens with you know, certain proteins that are involved in, in the cilia. And that's really kind of the ideal situation for a therapy because then not only might you have the ability to slow down degeneration, but you might actually have the ability to restore vision. If you can replace that protein that is important for um, elaborating and elongating the outer segment, um, the regrowth of the outer segment could actually bring back uh, vision. Thanks for that uh, that that explanation. Um, I gotta imagine that 
um, you know, when you're mentioning that you're, you know, it's a, not an obvious, I guess, but an attractive choice because um, you can give people, potentially give people back uh, vision and which, can, you know, be early on that uh, can affect them their whole life. Got to imagine the other side of that coin, though, is that you, these procedures are probably happening mostly in, in kids. Is that right? So, you know, we actually always start in adults for safety reasons. And so um, many of the initial studies during the dose escalation are performed in adults. And there's still hope with those patients that they might actually gain vision back. We, of course, think that the potential is greater in children for a variety of reasons that I can get into. Um, but there is still actually um, benefit, and we've seen that in, in many cases, in particular with veretagine and Aparvivac. We've seen lots of benefit in adults, and even from the preliminary data from the Brilliance trial, we, we've actually seen improvement in some of the adult patients. So I think that's very exciting, and we're hopeful that as we go to younger and younger patients that we're going to see an even greater benefit. No, that's great. And you, and you alluded to that trial. So I thought maybe we could dive into that a little bit. Um, if you could just give a little context of what the trial is all about, um, you know, what results that we have that you can share publicly now, um, and then, um, you know, maybe where it's headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the Brilliance trial is looking at patients that have a particular form of labor congenital amaurosis or LCA type 10. And this is patients who have mutations in a gene called CEP290 or CEP290. And in particular, it's looking at a, a specific uh, mutation, which is an intronic uh, mutation that affects splicing. So the, the goal in this trial is to treat those patients by using gene editing to essentially cut out uh, the portion of, of the RNA that kind of acts like a little stop sign. So there's a, a mutation that essentially creates a stop sign so that you don't get full length uh, transcription and you result in a, in a protein that's too short and probably gets degraded. But if you can use gene editing to cut that out, you can actually induce the cell to make the full length protein. And so um, we've treated uh, a number of patients. Some of that data has been presented um, in the first seven patients. And, and I think it's actually very exciting. You know, it's still preliminary. Of course, this is a phase one, two trial starting off in very severe patients, you know, first at a, at a very low dose and then moving up to a medium and, and higher dose. But uh, even one of the patients who was in the low dose actually had subjective improvement in their vision. And one of the patients in the medium doses um, that we treated at our site actually had an improvement in, in their visual acuity. They were able to detect uh, light easier um, when we tested their sensitivity. And even on a mobility test where we have them essentially navigate through a kind of a real life, you know, maze, um, they were able to perform that better um, after treatment. And so, you know, very early on, we're, we're starting to see signs of benefit. And, and that's very exciting, because the hope would be that as we go to higher doses, we might get better effect 
And then additionally, as we go to younger patients, we might see um, added effect. No, so I find it, you know, super interesting because gene editing is obviously a, a hot topic, if not the hot topic in, in medicine right now. Um, and it's not just for, you know, uh, inherited retinal diseases, right? So the, I guess, why is the eye, I mean, this is the first time uh, my understanding that this is actually being done in humans. I mean, cells before were being taken uh, into a dish, essentially into a petri dish where uh, this um, gene editing was being taken place and then, you know, put back into patients. But this is the first time to, to my knowledge that this has ever been done uh, directly in patients. So maybe correct me if I'm wrong on that. And yeah, that's, if you could so just, yeah, yeah. The first really in vivo um, treatment. So you certainly can take blood cells out and do gene editing and in the dish and then put those cells back in. And, you know, that's a, a great way, you know, to treat, you know, certain bloodborne diseases. Um, you know, there, there are definitely advantages to um, that method, but for something like the retina, we can't take the retina out of the body and, and put it back in. And the same goes for the, the central nervous system. So we do need to have ways of treating um, organs that are not removable. So the eye has, has a lot of advantages when it comes to gene therapy. Um, first off, we have two eyes, so we can treat one eye in, a, in an early phase trial and compare it uh, to the untreated eye. The second is that the retina is essentially part of the brain. It's an extension of the brain. So we really are treating the central nervous system, but we can look in and, and actually see the retina, unlike other parts of the, the nervous system. And we have the ability then to do a lot of imaging where we can actually see the histology almost on a cellular level using a technology called optical coherence tomography. And that gives us an advantage to actually see if there's any inflammation, you know, almost in real time. And that's a final advantage of the eye is that because the retina is behind the blood brain barrier or the blood retinal barrier, um, there's a relative immunoprivilege uh, in the subretinal space, which helps prevent uh, inflammation um, towards the, the viral vectors that we use to deliver the gene editing uh, machinery. So those are some of the, the advantages of doing this in the eye. No, I think, in, and it's, you know, it's super exciting as, uh, you know, the whole medical community looks on to see what happens in the eye because the, this seems to be, you know, an initial entrance point for, um, you know, for in vivo uh, therapy um, and for the reasons you've outlined. And I think it's just exciting. Uh, the early results are super exciting um, beyond, you know, well beyond the ophthalmology community. Um, the, this technique, is this something that can be uh, used in other forms of inherited, inherited retinal disease? Um, and if so, you know, which ones do you think would be most uh, amenable to it? Oh, absolutely. This is a technology that's going to be able to be adapted to other genetic mutations. I, you know, I think that the power in this technology really is applicable where the genes are, are very large and they are not really amenable to gene replacement therapy. So, you know, as you know, there has been, you know, 
one drug approved for gene replacement. Um, and that's a very small gene, RP65. And, and so that gene can fit within a AAV vector, but there are common genes such as USH2A um, that cause retinitis pigmentosa that are really too large to fit into an AAV. And so in that case, gene editing is, is going to probably be a better um, approach. Yeah, no, I think it, it makes a lot of sense because I think people have tried to tackle that problem in other ways by, uh, you know, trying to have the cells express truncated proteins or uh, looking at other, you know, lentiviral vector uh, systems and whatnot. It seems like this uh, gene editing approach seems to be a, um, uh, a potentially a much more robust um, solution to, to the problem of trying to you know, package uh, large genes and deliver them into the cells. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, now, is this something that um, your group is uniquely spearheading when it comes to LCA and the eye, or are there, you know, there, uh, are there other interests and in, in groups uh, doing this as well? Well, I, I certainly don't want to take <laughs> the credit for this. I, you know, I think that this is really represent. Um, you know, years of, of work by the, the scientists who really developed, you know, this technology, such as Jennifer Dudna and, you know, others who, you know, have really been recognized for that, as well as, you know, my collaborators on the trial, Eric Pierce at Mass Ioneer. So we're, we're all working together. I mean, this is really a big uh, group, you know, effort of, of many different people. And, you know, there are other, you know, other people looking at, you know, gene editing for treatment of other genes. So I think that this is certainly, you know, something that is going to really continue to grow and, and evolve. And uh, I hope, you know, I hope so, because I think there is just such potential for helping patients. Uh, and that's great. Um, I just want to maybe wrap up with uh, one more question, if you don't mind. Um, and it's more just your uh your thoughts on where this is all headed and uh maybe i guess on the brilliance trial what are some of the next steps but then you know from your vantage point um where is this all headed and uh i won't ask you to speculate on timelines because i think people always hate to speculate on timelines to you know to to uh to the clinic but uh i guess it, you know is the research on track with uh where you and your team all hoped it would be now and uh you know, are the, are the next steps, uh, are the next steps, uh, in view? I, I think we're definitely, you know, on track and I, I think things are really, you know, moving forward, you know, especially when you factor in, you know, we've been in a, a two year, uh, pandemic, uh, which hasn't been the easiest thing for, for clinical trials. Um, but, um, you know, I'm happy to report that, that things are moving ahead and, you know, as I mentioned, we're really excited to hopefully, um, be treating younger and younger, you know, patients as, as time goes on. Excellent. Um, well, listen, I want to, I want to thank you for, I mean, first of all, for, you know, helping to spearhead this work. I know you're, you're passing the credit to a lot of other people, but, uh, certainly you're central in this. So, um, thank you for doing that as from my perspective as a patient, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, I also like to thank you for coming on the podcast today, sharing your, your thoughts and perspectives. It's, uh, certainly something that I enjoyed and I think that the audience is going to enjoy as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.